Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from City University, London. On this episode, we're speaking to Patricia Ventura, who's from Spelman College in the United States, and she's written a book called Neoliberal Culture, Living with American Neoliberalism. It was published by Ashgate in 2012. Okay, welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. Uh, I'm here with Patricia Ventura, who's from Spelman College uh, in the United States, uh, and we're going to talk about her new book, uh, Neoliberal Culture, Living with American uh, Neoliberalism. So uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Patricia. And I think could we kick off by, um, if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, sort of uh, your position um, at Spelman and your sort of academic background. All right. Yes. Thanks for having me. I am an associate professor it, uh, Spelman's English department. My area is cultural studies and visual culture, which uh, is pretty broad catch-all term, right? So I have a lot of interest just trying to all come together to understand how um, people live their everyday lives in the U.S. context, because I'm uh, in American studies uh, as well as cultural studies, and kind of just like the trying to get to, especially in relation to my teaching, trying to get my students to be aware of those things that they just take for granted, the habitual, you know, routinized parts of their daily life. So I try to increase their awareness, and then my book project arises out of that desire to offer a kind of critical perspective on, on everyday life as well. Uh, Spelman's a interesting place. We are a historically black women's college in Atlanta and liberal arts college. And so we have a a population of students who are very much affected by the rise of neoliberalism because, you know, you see the way it impacts uh, anyone who is kind of trying to have a more, say, aspirational perspective on college rather than, you know, just coming from a tradition of a lot of kids who had their parents, grandparents, et cetera, go to college. A lot of my students are first-generation students. So, you know, this project is personal on that, that level as well. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, that you kind of pick up on what I guess is the uh, the kind of the classic um, job or, or role of cultural studies is to kind of um, get people to think about what they assume is common sense in a, in a different um, or much more critical way. And that's one of the things that um, that I found really interesting in the way that you start the book, which was kind of going back to, um, to I suppose, an older tradition of cultural studies with this idea about structures of feeling um, and the way that neoliberalism has a particular uh, kind of way it structures everyday life. Um, and I wonder if we can start there in terms of the book's project and what made you kind of um, use that idea of a structure of feeling and and how come you started with that particular uh, theoretical construct to get a grip or or an idea of neoliberalism? Well, I mean, you know, the project 
for me really evolved out of work that I had done with my dissertation on globalization. Right. And I, that was where I started, and and I realized eh, this is this is just one component of something larger. As mm. I, you know, decided to keep thinking about these the questions I had started with about changes that were happening in the U.S. as a result of the end of the Cold War, which is where the project had started. And so I really saw that I, I could address these large, you know, almost in some ways unfathomable changes because they're so massive. Uh, by thinking of just how they're lived in individuals' lives and kind of social experiences that are not even recognized, you know, as social, which is um, part of the way Williams talks about structure of feeling. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to see that, um, I guess, that kind of English uh, tradition that was applied, um, you know, to very sort of... um, British uh, questions by Williams um, see it kind of come up against uh, these really, you know, sort of um, American um, cultural questions. Um, and I, I found it particularly interesting in the way that played out with, with other theoretical areas as well. So um, I, I thought the work of Michel Foucault was really important to the book and you, you sort of draw on, on governmentality and biopower as well. Um, so could, could you say a little bit about how um, you use those two ideas in the text. Well, so, you know, I feel like really, if we want to talk about the way neoliberalism is in this cultural perspective, I felt like I had to bring together, if you want to put it in terms of two major philosophical or political traditions, I guess I would think of, or in terms of theorists, because we're talking about Foucault, yeah. I would bring Foucault together with Harvey. And yeah, so yeah, I yeah. felt like, David Harvey, sorry. So I felt like I had to think about those kind of larger economic or globalization questions in relation to just how populations are regulated, which is the gets me to the biopower piece, right? So, and in the... The question of governmentality, which obviously is central to Foucault, you know, I was thinking about, well, what marks neoliberalism in the U.S.? And it's really about that kind of care <laughs> administered to corporations rather than to individuals, right? So the pastoral care that Foucault talks about is something that, you know, made the government, state, national and state governments so important to individuals lives actually gets transferred to corporations and citizens and you know right right quote-unquote regular people are uh, told oh no this is good right it's going to make you have a better job and your the economy's going to improve if we help these corporations and give them tax breaks or build a big stadium for some sports team and you know of course it never well never it rarely you know, trickles down the way they say it does, but that's the big promise. So I felt like I had to put the economic together with these kind of regulation of populations, you know, and how that process works. So the Foucault with the Harvey is kind of a way to think about the project. Yeah, I thought theoretically it was really interesting because obviously Harvey is um, quite a mainstream sort of Marxist scholar and, you know, draws on on Marx centrally and, and Foucault had that um, sort of complicated uh, relationship with Marx and tries to distance himself, but it really made sense in the text the way that to understand the the political economy um, ideas that Harvey is talking about, you've got to understand both 
um, yeah, the structures of feeling, but also the way individuals are kind of regulated and, you know, are almost sort of brought into being. And I think that comes up, um, and we might talk about this a little later, came up in, uh, particularly in the chapters about the military and, and, and the, uh, the invasion of Iraq as well, really, really fascinatingly. So um, if I can turn to kind of, um, I guess, the core arguments in the book, uh, which is that there are these particular components of neoliberalism, uh, which I thought were a fascinating range um, that kind of underpin uh, the neoliberal uh, American sort of imagination or or consciousness. So you, you sort of outline the, the erosion of governments, the role of globalization, corporatocracy, biopower, and then hyperlegality as well. And I, I wonder if we might sort of turn to them um, in relation to the chapters as well. So starting with um, maybe corporatocracy, because you touched on that um, in something you said earlier about the way corporations are treated as people, as individuals. But this plays out, um, for example, in your analysis of, of Oprah, uh, Winfrey's um, book club yeah. and of Walmart as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, so corporatocracy is, uh, you know, governmentality or you know, uh, kind of a way in which corporations exercise significant power over the state. They become recipients of its care. And so I talk about, you know, Walmart and, and, and Walmart's become a very, um, uh, a touchstone for resisting this new liberal, neoliberal, the new economy, some call it, whatever, however you want to think of it. It's become a touchstone for resisting neoliberal capitalism in the U.S. context. And I think in other parts of the world as well, you know. Um, and so... What, what, what we find, though, when we look at Walmart is the way that, in fact, it's, you know, to use the derogatory term that uh, Republicans use for recipients of, um, you know, public assistance here in the U.S., it is a welfare queen. Mm. It receives so much indirect and in some cases direct support from um, from governments, right? So it pays insanely low wages and recommends to its employees, hey, why don't you go get, uh, you know, welfare? You definitely qualify. And in, there have been cases of Walmart managers handing out, um, you know, the paperwork required to apply for public assistance. So it is a beneficiary in a direct way of of the welfare state, even as you know the the Walton family um, really are well known to be very conser- politically conservative you know republican types who of course their whole platform in the u s context is all about ending the welfare state right so it, it's it's not in any way it doesn't really make a lot of sense if you think about it uh, but that, that there's just so much um, kind of a rhetoric around these areas right so the well the welfare recipient oh they don't work they're lazy but on the other hand the welfare recipients are people um, who work at Walmart for instance right so so this is just one component of, of this this process but I'm trying to put together these various strands and, and there's a lot a lot I know that I'm touching on in the book, um, but I'm trying to hopefully give a model for how to do neoliberal cultural analysis in the U.S. context or how I think it would be, you know, uh, potentially useful to do it. 
And also to, to run some of those studies myself through some major figures like Oprah and Walmart. Yeah, because the, I mean, the, the same um, political economy analysis is true over here in the UK at the moment, whereby much of the welfare state is to do with supporting people who are in work and are being paid very, very poorly, as opposed to the kind of, you know, the cultural figure um, of someone who is out of work um, and is, is receiving what, yeah, what they call welfare in the States or Social Security here in the UK. But really interestingly, I think, is, is that kind of that cultural question of where Oprah's Book Club and the use of uh, the book Where the Heart Is kind of ties into this, uh, this political economy story. Okay, right. So in this chapter, what I do is I talk about, you know, I want to think about the way Walmart plays such a central role in, in U.S. life today. One in five Americans goes to a Walmart once a week. So this is a, you know, pretty major. It's not only is it a place where people shop, it's a survival strategy for a lot of people too, because the, the, the stuff they sell is quite cheap too. So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, causes the problem and also helps people deal with the problem. Mm, yeah, yeah. But um, so anyway, so I so I wanted to think about Walmart and there is a, a book uh, called Where the Heart Is, which is part of, um, which is was one of the more popular books in the original run of Oprah's Book Club. Now I wanted to talk about Oprah's Book Club because I really wanted to think about literature. So I wanted to talk about, so, so, so many strands come together. I wanted to talk about shopping and consumer behavior. I wanted to think about reading practices, you know, just again, the way people live their everyday lives. So Oprah's Book Club was, was a very important part of people's reading practices in the U.S. Um, and still is, you know, uh, but the show is not in production anymore. But it, you know, she is a very active um, internet uh, fan base too. So I wanted to think about these everyday life practices, shopping, reading, and I found I could actually put them together in one chapter um, in, a, in a way that I hope is productive by thinking about this book, Where the Heart Is, which is about a young woman who is stranded by her boyfriend at a Walmart and uh, while she's pregnant. And uh, so she just lives in the Walmart. No one knows she's living there and uh, has her baby at the Walmart. <laughs> and um, then she names the baby America's Nation, you know, which is just <laughs> awful. I mean, it's, it's not a great book, but it's an important book, not only because it was the first Oprah book to be made into a film, but it also is on a lot of reading lists for yeah, yeah. a middle school kid. So, you know, this is, this is a, these these kind of cheesy narratives actually carry a lot of weight and and a lot of symbolic significance. And in the book, not only does she have the baby at Walmart, she works at Walmart. And Sam Walton appears because this book was set in the early '90s, and he, this is before he died. He died in '92. Sam Walton appears and gives her a little bit of cash and you know it's just so absurd and they treat him like he's some kind of you know saint yeah. and, and it's crazy um, but but he apparently was beloved by, by people you know and uh, so in that sense I guess it reflected something and, and so I wanted to show how these strands all kind of weave together in, in, in one place but you know Oprah herself in that chapter I talk about what an important figure she is for um, neoliberal culture as well because she teaches her fans and viewers how to kind of manage themselves you know to create life plans to make them the best them they could be 
And so she's an important figure as well, I think. And, of course, both Walton and Winfrey are, you know, these kind of seen as people's friends, but they're also, of course, they're among the richest people. Well, Walton is dead, but his family are among the richest people in the world. Oprah is one of, among the richest people in the world. So these are not, even though they seem like just us folks, they're very much removed from day-to-day life that most people understand. And it, it, it's fascinating how these sorts of um, cultural questions uh, don't stop at the level of, I guess, the kind of uh, the popular novel or, or the television show either. Um, when you talk uh, about the kind of the erosion of governments, uh, one of your chapters has got the example of uh, Las Vegas um, as another site where um, not just kind of, you know, the sort of corporatocracy plays itself out, but the kind of um, erosion and, and collapse of, of the government structures that really sort of sustained the United States after the Cold War. So, yeah, so the Las Vegas um, work is, again, if, I, if I'm trying to understand how, you know, everyday life, I think Las Vegas is this kind of fantasy vacation of everyday Americana. So this is the place where supposedly you get away from your everyday life, but it's one of the most popular places to go. So it's, the you know, the common place to be uncommon, if you want to think of it that way, if that makes sense. So Las Vegas is this really um, interesting place. And, you know, it, not only in that way, but because my original work, I started thinking about Las Vegas because I was really uh, trying to understand uh, post-modernity and where it fits into all this. That's why I originally started a long, long, long time ago. And I started reading Las, thinking about Las Vegas, reading about Las Vegas, visiting Vegas often, and realizing, my goodness, this is a caricature of globalization. And so that's where I started thinking about, you know, this kind of globalization piece of this puzzle that I'm trying to uh, put together as neoliberal culture. And Vegas, really, to me, it not only does it caricature it in terms of the hotel construction that was ve- that was very popular in the 90s, which I say is the first decade of the neoliberal culture era, but, um, you know, it lives it out through its with the people who work there. So, you know, there's immigrant labor is a huge part of what makes Las Vegas and most of America possible. Right? Any kind of service sector employment is made possible by um, immigrant labor in the U.S. Yeah, and Im- immigrant labor is sort of central in, in many ways to the book as well um, because you deal with um, the sort of, I guess, the other side of America uh, in the sense of Mexico um, as being the source of both a lot of fears uh, for the American middle class uh, that are expressed both kind of politically and culturally, but also um, in terms of, of real practicalities as you identify the fact that contemporary America just couldn't function um, without uh, the levels of, um, of immigrant labor that it, that it enjoys. And this um, I thought was particularly interesting. You, you used the term hyperlegality. Um, several times in the book, and it becomes really important in the the chapter on on poverty and and the welfare state. So I, I don't know if you could sort of pin that down. Right. So hyperlegality is the exercise of control by kind of creating extensive new legal classifications, or, or you know, say enforcing trifling ones. Um, the the a classic example 
um, from a legal theorist, Nasser Hussein, says he says that it's the spitting on the ground strategy that Robert Kennedy used to attack the mob. You know, mm. if they do any little thing, we're going to bust them for that. And so this hyperlegality becomes really, I think, important in terms of thinking about welfare. And of course, I mean, you know, talking about welfare in relation to neoliberalism, right, I'm not creating some new connection there. This is an obvious connection. But so I wanted to think about how that works out, though, in terms of, again, these larger structures in which people live. And, and, and so what I found is that it's actually, you know, part of this whole family values rhetoric that's really important to understand neoliberalism because family becomes the one of the substitutes for um, the state, for social reproduction, you know, um, enabled by, say, you know, all of us putting our money into the general tax fund and then, you know, we, we have better schools or something like that. We have better health. We have health care. This is meant to be eroded in neoliberalism so that the family is all that's left. And so so what um, hyperlegality does, I think, is tries, it tries to impose family values through, you know, encouraging them through law, encouraging people to be married um, through welfare reform law, which, you know, you think here's a private decision, but it, it, the, the law absolutely right promotes that and, and promotes it as a strategy for combating poverty as opposed to thinking about it as a social problem. Well, the problem of poverty is caused by bad people. And they have bad family values. And so we need to find a way to give them good family values. You know, it's, it's very simplistic logic. And it basically blames the poor for their poverty without ever taking any kind of uh, larger social view. And I think that's pretty common in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it seemed very um, sort of contradictory as well, this, this figure of the family that on the one hand, um, and I think this is, you know, something that comes up uh, quite a lot in studies of uh, both uh, neoliberalism generally, but also its manifestations in America in particular, the way that there's this kind of insistence on a particular kind of family values uh, that go hand in hand with a really strong insistence on the individual. And, you know, that thing you were saying about Oprah, the idea of sort of making yourself the best person you can be, um, you know, kind of striving to fulfill one's potential um, to use the kind of Foucauldian ideas of, of regulating oneself uh, to be, you know, a, a sort of a good functioning sort of social unit, whilst at the same time that, you know, there's this insistence on particular forms of conduct and behaviour that are bound up with the family and, you know, the kind of, I guess, the uh, the traditional values of, of an America of, of almost the 1950s rather than the, uh, the 1970s or even the 1990s. Mm. Right, right. And I mean, you know, family, the, what the definition of family is, of course, is changing all the time and changing quickly and will change, I think, in response to terrible uh, st economic stressors that the poor experience and, and that the middle class experience here in the U.S. and, of course, throughout the world. Yeah, and it, it, it was fascinating, that dividing line, actually, that the, the, the sort of the figure of the family um, – certainly in the fourth chapter, didn't seem to be, um, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of only about uh, regulating the poor, but also it seemed to have a, a really important role in regulating the middle class as well, giving them an identity that, you know, wasn't those people who they define as poor, 
you know, wasn't those people who were, um, you know, maybe involved in the welfare system, but actually at the same time they were facing a lot of the precariousness and uncertainties as the, uh, the people they were trying to kind of make themselves distinct and socially distant from. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, they've done surveys and most Americans think that they don't receive, which is crazy. Most Americans think they don't receive any kind of social welfare benefit. I mean, not even, they, they, they you know, because they think, oh, welfare, poor people, bad people. Okay. I don't, I'm not that. That's because that's the cliche, right? But um, most people, if you ask them, they have received, you know, what benefits in the form of how of, of help with getting first mortgages, with student loan assistance. You know, these are common middle class assistance, um, but that doesn't get called that. Doesn't have that stigma and that label. Yeah, it's, it's and, yeah. No, it, please. It's seen as being, you know, sort of absolutely acceptable because it doesn't have the, as you identify in the book, the kind of the cultural baggage. Um, of other forms of government assistance, right? And and yeah, so so that well, welfare reform is is you know again it's a central part of of neoliberal strategy, but there's just this kind of meanness to it that's I think really stunning in the sense of you know just testing welfare recipients to see if they're on drugs just the assumption that they're absolutely drug addicts and that's why that they are that they are poor well you know there's no testing for you if you're getting a um you know i don't know assistance with your mortgage there's no testing to see if you're on drugs yeah and, and it, it seems the conflict as well with that that other side of the sort of legal uh, constitutional and, and again you give a couple of examples tradition in the states that you know, is bound up with particular kinds of freedom that sometimes neoliberalism in the States seems to be promoting um, around sort of freedom of individuals. But at the same time is, is and I think you draw on uh, Agamben's states of exception ideas here, but is saying that there are large parts or large groups of people in American society that just, they aren't really people. They aren't really citizens, so they shouldn't be uh, kind of given the same legal rights and status as, as everybody else. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and just little things too, in terms of returning back to the family values. One of the things I just thought was so interesting as I was doing some research on, on the way family values rhetoric plays out in people's lives was just, you know, how marriage is an aspiration rather than, you know, well, we're going to get married. No, you have to earn the right to be married by having some kind of economic stability. I found that really interesting because, of course, marriage is being promoted in the, you know, the, the act, that the, the law that created the welfare reform, you know, policies as a way to get out of poverty. But for the impoverished, it's actually something you earn once you've gotten out of poverty. Yeah, but it, it's that sort of, um, the it's the liberal bit in the, the neoliberal, that, you know, much of this would be sort of in keeping with uh, with Victorian England, except for the fact it's being played out in uh, in very new ways in, in the States. And I guess that, that might take me um, sort of into the, the final chapter of the book, actually, where a lot of these themes come together, uh, where you, you analyse both, uh, the invasion of, of Iraq under George W. Bush, um, and some of the uh, the cultural representations, particularly uh, a film, Gunner's Palace, um, 
and I'm interested to see how the kind of broader themes of the text actually play out in that in that final chapter. Yeah, and again, I know there's a lot of strands that are getting woven together in yeah, this yeah. book, a lot. But I really, again, was trying to figure out this day-to-day life, and I couldn't analyze life in the first decade of the 2000s without analyzing the Iraq war. And, you know, it, it, I mean, still would analyze it today, right? I mean, mm, it's the Afghanistan, you know, more than Iraq, but... I mean, drone warfare more than Iraq, too. But, but I mean, these are just these this kind of the the imperialism of that war signaled something, right? So I really needed to un, to see that and understand that better to to really talk about neoliberal culture in the U.S. And so, yeah, so I started um, looking into the uh, what, 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 again, I try to use some kind of artifact, some object that will ground my analysis. So we've talked about Vegas, we've talked about, you know, Walmart. For this work to try to think about the U.S., you know, in, in imperialist relations, uh, I, I chose a do- the first documentary that was released in theaters about troops in the Iraq War. It's called Gunner Palace. And so I started analyzing that, and and you know it looked like an episode of Cops. I don't, do you know Cops? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so it, it's, it looked like Cops, and in fact, I, you know that's basically it was Cops writ large. So I, what I think uh, about the the documentary, and so you know you see then this kind of law and order ideology that under you know that undergirds Cops, which is oh yeah, you know it's the cops, they're the good guys because we're riding along with them and yep. if they go and stop somebody and that person's guilty, we don't see how many of the people that they arrest are actually guilty or found guilty of anything, but that's just the assumption. And so again, it's the same way in which the war got promoted in the U.S. If the troops are there, then that's where we need to be. And that's then, then the people that are, the troops are fighting must be the bad guys because the troops are the good guys. And, and it, it's this very simple logic and when the logic start when you when the evidence is clear that it's not that simple then the US news media just doesn't cover it anymore because the troops are sacred right so you can't do anything that says maybe their lives are being risked for no good reason well you know no good reason for them certainly there's a lot of corporations that made money from this war but um, if there's no good reason for the war then we we can't you know, do anything in, in the media, we can't really talk about that. So we just stop talking about it. That's kind of seems to be the approach for uh, the way that U.S. wars are represented. But anyway, so that's what I was trying to think about then. So talking about these documentary, this documentary, and then the larger issues of, of the war itself. And, and, it, and yeah. And the, and the big cultural contrast is, is, I guess, with the 70s and early 80s, where the cultural response to Vietnam was exceptionally critical by both news media and um, things like Hollywood, whereas that just doesn't seem to have happened at all um, with the, the cultural uh, analysis you offer of, of the uh, the Iraq invasion. Well, I mean, there was a lot of work done to, to make the Vietnam War be actually a story about how the American people failed the American troops mm. as opposed to anything else that the war was about. Yes. So that's the dominant narrative um, in the U.S. about Vietnam is that the troops, our U.S. troops, suffered because, you know, damn hippies were spitting on them. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's the narrative, which uh, there's no evidence of anyone ever having spat upon 
the troops, but that's the story that's out there. And so that the, the so that the idea is that the U.S. people owe the troops uh, from Vietnam um, support for all wars. Again, th- again, that doesn't make sense. Of course, the, the average Vietnam vet doesn't deserve to be spat upon. No one's saying that. No one even thinks that. But the logic plays out in terms of the rhetoric around war. Then is that in order to support these brave people, we have to support the war itself. And yeah. it all starts from the rhetoric about the Vietnam War. Yeah, yeah. Um- one of the things that was quite quite nice about the book, um, which, uh, I mean, uh, as you can sort of gather as, as a listener from the last half an hour, that you know neoliberalism Ameri- neoliberalism in America is deeply divisive. It has really you know sort of horrible consequences for the people who are on the receiving end um, of its ideologies, um, and you know it, it's not it's not a good thing that's happened. Um, to the states, <laughs> but you finish with with a kind of a couple of hopeful examples in the conclusion, which I thought was quite nice and was quite um, quite unusual for a critical theory book as well, which uh, tends to just have the pessimistic analysis. So um, the slow food movement that um, kind of originates in Europe, and then the food not bombs idea, I thought were two really nice and sort of hopeful things. Uh, to end on, so I, I don't know if you could say a couple of things about those too. Yeah, and 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 can I just say, in terms of the other chapters, you know, I there are kind of utopian elements mm. in the other chapters yeah. as well. Yeah. I would say because I think you know, I think there's there's always that present in any kind of cultural formation that is popular. I thought you know that's Jameson talks about Frederick Jameson talks. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think that's, that's right. You know, so, so, you know, in the Las Vegas chapter, I talk a little bit about the very strong union movement that's there, you know, and these are small things, but they, they matter. Right. So, um, but in the last chapter, I talk about, about food politics and I know, and I knew when I was doing it that I, that there are so many people will just roll their eyes and I understand that, but I also understand that, that people are where they are and, and they feel the need to do something. And I think that it's easy to just roll, roll your eyes. And, you know, I've seen a t-shirt. It, it's funny, but it says Goldman Sachs doesn't care if you raise chickens. Mm. And I think it's a funny t-shirt, but if they don't care, I think the person who's raising the chickens cares and I think that that's valid you know and I don't want to discount these individual efforts as well and I do think also of course they're very vital too depending on how far you take them so something like Food Not Bombs is an organization that of cleaners people who don't who are trying to opt out of consumption well not opt out completely but but trying to make up create a model of and and an emblem and a symbol of people who are trying to to feed the hungry without talking about it as charity, but saying this is a a public responsibility and connecting poverty and hunger to U S military policy and see, and and those are connected. And I think a name like food, not bombs illustrates that very nicely. And so, you know, I, I, I show these people who there are people out there trying to live differently and yes, they're, they're, they're not changing the system in a revolutionary way, but they're, they're creating alternative visions. And, and, you know, as I say in that conclusion, you know, the, the, the South America and Central America is where the changes really are probably happening. But, 
you know, I'm talking about the U.S. and what people in the U.S. context do. And so these are you know, food politics has become a site for trying to think differently. So, yeah, totally, totally. Um, I wonder is the um, is that kind of note of optimism carried forward into into what you're working on at the moment, or have you have you decided to sort of leave neoliberalism aside for the moment? What uh, what's your kind of current uh, intellectual project? Yeah, uh, no, there's no optimism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm depressed. Um, you know, uh, I'm talking about, well, it's okay. It's the, the model for how I work is, you know, I try to talk about everyday life, yeah. popular culture, and then try to see it in big, in these connections to these bigger ideas. So right now I'm writing about a show. Do you, I don't know if you know the show. It's called Scandal. Uh, I've heard of it. Yeah. But I, it might be on a, a UK television channel. Yeah. Yeah, it's well, you know, it's interesting to I started watching it because I knew my students would watch it when when the show first came on, because it's about it's the first primetime drama in like 40 years to be about an African-American woman. Mm. I told you my students are African-American women. So I'm like, well, I have to watch this, this show. And Scandal is the stars Carrie Washington, the actress, and she plays this uh, DC kind of fixer, a person who cleans up scandals, you know, is a, is a power broker. And she also, it's so funny, she also happens to be having an affair with the president, um, <laughs> which is, who is white in the show. So there's so many issues being touched on. But within this, there also are, you know, it turns out her dad is the head of this. <laughs> so funny. Her dad is the head of this super spy agency that's uh, not the CIA. It's, it's secret. No one knows. It's secret, more secretive than the CIA. And, um, and, and, and they deal with torture. They deal with the kind of these really critical issues that the U.S. population or the U.S. political, you know, scene is dealing with, I should say. Mm. But, but they deal with it in this melodrama. This is a, it's a melodrama. And so I really love thinking about the role this show plays in staging many of the contemporary cultural and political questions that are out there with this particular cast, which is, as I said, the first African-American woman um, in primetime in the U.S., in, in a primetime show in a major network. So, you know, so, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a touchstone really. And so I'm talking about that in relation to problems of um, torture and representations of torture, political torture. Cause they do, they do that just like on the show 24. Which yeah, yeah, yeah. They have, they deal with that, but, but you see it in a very different way because the creator of the show is in fact an African-American woman herself who's pretty, I think, politically conscious. So they have torture, but they also show it in a, in a very different light. And so I'm talking about the representation of social death and torture in relation to this particular cast of, you know, how, how, is, how it's different when it's an African-American woman at the center of the action rather than, say, Jack Bauer, you know. Yeah. So, um, so that's what I'm working on right that's now. Great. And so, yeah. And are yeah. you going to sort of build that up into uh, into a book project? Or? Right now, it's a. It, I would like it to be part of a larger project about necropolitics and social death. In and um, you know, I've also written another chapter about the Cohen brothers burn after reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Jesus, a great, I think, great send up on the whole Bush years. It's a very, very funny film as well. Yeah. So, right. So, so, um, you know, so I'm, I'm putting it in that context of, of just trying to really think more about necropolitics. So really it grows out of my chapter on the Iraq war. So neoliberalism is always there, but I'm not staging it in the same way because in this book that we're talking about, I was really trying to develop a model for analyzing neoliberal culture in the U.S. as well as doing that analysis. And so here I'm taking one of those pieces and trying to really run with it. Great. I look forward to uh, seeing how that project develops. It sounds really Yeah, really yeah me too. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it takes a lot of time, as you know. Yeah, of course. And it's always sort of difficult when, you know, you're just at the sort of the ideas into writing stage and you're wondering where is it going to go? Will it be a book? Will it be a series of papers? Will it all come together? Yeah, yeah. It's tricky. It's tricky. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, thanks very much for uh, taking the time to chat to us. Oh, thank you. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. So you've been listening to me, your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from City University London, speaking to Patricia Ventura from Spelman College. And we've been discussing her book, Neoliberal Culture, Living with American Neoliberalism. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory, and we'll speak to you next time.